Podcast. I'm Alex Steiermark, creator and host of the show. Episode 6 is a conversation that I recently had with Memphis composer, producer, musician, Scott Bomar. As you'll hear, Scott has a deep reverence and a passion for the history of the music of Memphis, the city he grew up in. It's always informative and a real pleasure to speak with Scott. I know you'll enjoy this conversation. Scott Bomar, thank you so much for doing this. Really appreciate it. We're sitting in a hotel room across the street from Lincoln Center where you're going to be performing tonight with your band, The Bow Keys, and Don Bryant, which is just awesome. And uh, you were the composer on Hustle and Flow. You've worked with Craig Brewer a long time. I've been fortunate to be able to work with you over the years, too, on Soul Men, Malcolm Lee's film. You were appearing in the film with The Bow Keys. You produced three tracks, one of which was nominated for a Grammy, a track with Anthony Hamilton. And... Of course, you wrote and produced the music for a film that I directed, Losers Take All, and you were very instrumental from the outset with The 78 Project, and you guys appear in the movie. And I've always admired your music, and I've admired your dedication to Memphis, where you were born, and I think it's really interesting to see how you have developed this really remarkable career. You have three Grammy nominations, you've won an Emmy, You've worked with Craig Brewer, like I said, on a few films. You're able to, to do all these things and stay in your community. And I think that's really important because I think there are, most of the people listening to this podcast don't live in Los Angeles or they don't live in New York. And I think you're an amazing example and role model for people who want to make beautiful music and write beautiful music and work in film. So... If you don't mind, let's go back a little. You were born in Memphis, and what were your early days, and how did you, how did your musical experiences sort of lead you into film music and working with Craig, I guess, initially? Well, thank you for such a nice introduction, Alex. Um, that was very kind and humbling, everything you just mentioned. Um, I'll... I love Memphis. I love the music of Memphis. Um, when I was younger, I spent a lot of time at my grandparents' house. And it was there at a young age I discovered my mother's record collection. And she was a teenager during the 60s and had an amazing record collection, which I now have. <laughs> and uh, she had everything from early satellite and stacks releases on Carla and Rufus Thomas. She had James Brown LPs on King records. She had Everly brothers albums, Ray Charles genius plus soul equals jazz. The Beatles rubber soul, some great, uh, 45s by this Memphis guitar player named Travis Womack, who went on to be a session player at uh, fame down in muscle shoals. So it was discovering that record collection and those albums that really got me turned on to music. Um, around that same time, which would, would have been the late 70s, early 80s, there, there was great radio in Memphis. And the radio stations in Memphis at that time would mix in, you know, Stax Records, Sun Records, all this great Memphis music, they would mix that in with like the new hits. 
So it was just listening to the radio where I first heard Green Onions by Booker T and the MGs, Soul Finger by the Bar K's, you know, Elvis's early son sides, Jerry Lee Lewis's son records, Charlie Rich. And at the time, I didn't even know, um, you know, something like Green Onions or Soul Finger. I would hear those, and it was strange because it's like no one had to say that that was from Memphis. There was just something about the way those records sounded that felt like it felt like Memphis. I just mm-hmm. really, I'll never forget hearing Soul Finger by the Barcase for the first time. I just, I, it was the most exciting thing I'd ever heard. I just thought it was the most fun record, and it kind of has the soul feel, but it also has this other element to it that almost sounds like a James Bond film theme a product of the Memphis public school system, our our high school had a radio station. And at that radio station, there were, uh, I took radio broadcasting classes. It literally was a radio station in my high school. And it was, you know, a lot of trade publications in there for radio. And there's just a lot of papers all around that all had to do with like soul music and that era, uh, that era of music and it was just real fascinating and I um, also around that time I started playing in bands and uh, start playing bass and would be in various recording studios and would meet older folks who had been around in the sun and stacks high records era in Memphis and um, the first person I met who was a real mentor to me uh, in that world was uh, Roland Janes. Mm-hmm. And Roland was a, started off as a session guitar player at Sun Records. And he's on Jerry Lee Lewis's hits from Sun, like Great Balls of Fire and a whole lot of shaking going on. He played guitar on Billy Lee Riley's uh, Flying Saucers Rock and Roll. And uh, after Sun folded, he then went on to become an engineer, and he had a studio in Memphis in the 60s called Sonic. And after Sonic folded in the 60s, he then later went to work at Sam Phillips Recording, which is the studio that Sam Phillips started after he sold Elvis's contract. And after Sun, the Sun studio folded, he built this really great studio called Sam Phillips Recording that's still there today. And Roland was the engineer there in the you know, 80s, 90s, 2000s, up until he passed away a few years back. And um, my first band was called Impala, and we had the opportunity to record with Roland, and we made three records with him, and that was, for me, a creatively and in many ways a big turning point for me because he was such a mentor. We were an instrumental band, did, you know, kind of... You know, essentially like surf music, uh, really inspired by Travis Womack, the guitar player I mentioned, uh, The Ventures, Henry Mancini was a big influence on that band. Uh, just all film music, uh, John Barry's scores for uh, the James Bond films, Ennio Morcone, that whole world of 60s, 50s, 60s soundtrack guitar music. That was a big inspiration to Impala.
Um, that's how really through the band Impala is how I got into doing film music. Because our music was very popular with music supervisors. So we started getting requests for licenses of our music. And I knew nothing at all about the music business and about the business part of it, and about music publishing and about masters and how to quote for a, for a film license. I was, just didn't know anything about it at all. And I knew that Roland handled that for the Sam Phillips uh, publishing catalog. Mm -hmm. I knew that that was one of, in addition to being the engineer, he also handled the licenses for their publishing. And uh, I called Roland and he completely, you know, gave me an education on how to handle film licensing. Mm -hmm. And so he, t he taught me how to do it. He taught me, you know, what to ask for when you're, you're negotiating that fee and really helped me. And if it weren't for him helping me, I, I don't think I would have ever had a career in, in film and doing film music because it uh, started off, you know, with the licensing and then eventually, uh, you know, Impala was asked to do the score for a, uh, a really super low to no budget local film. Uh, and that was uh, the first thing, the first time that I ever had the opportunity to write original music for picture. And that was a film called Teenage Tupelo. And the director was a gentleman in Memphis named Mike McCarthy. <laughs> That was when the groundswell of interest and uh, momentum was growing to start the Stax Museum of American Soul Music. And that was that museum being formed, being started in Memphis, I feel like was a real game changer for Memphis because it, I believe, it made people realize how important Stax Records was and how important the music made in Memphis in the 60s and 70s was and how much of an impact that music had globally. And uh, what's... I, I've just really seen the perception of... I've, I've seen Memphians' perception of music change since that museum was created. And also, you know, it was built on the original location, which is in South Memphis in the Soulsville neighborhood. And I've seen what it's, how it's transformed that neighborhood, which has been amazing. Mm -hmm. And I feel like out of that momentum being created with that museum, I mean, that was how I met Charles Skip Pitts, who played guitar with Isaac Hayes, because he had been living in Washington, D.C. And when that museum was being built, just the energy and the hope that was created there, a lot of the former 
studio musicians started moving back to Memphis because mm-hmm. they're like, they're rebuilding stacks. You know, this is going to be, uh, you know, there's going to be opportunities through this museum for us to work, which I believe happened. Mm-hmm. So Skip Pitts, he moved back to Memphis. Uh, the drummer Willie Hall, who was a session player who played on, you know, a lot of stacks hits, and he was Isaac Hayes's drummer and played on Shaft and all of Isaac Hayes's soundtracks, Truck Turner, Tough Guys. He moved back to Memphis from Atlanta at that time. So, uh, you know, I met them and, uh, you know, we started the Bo Keys. I felt like there's these amazing musicians in Memphis who played on these amazing records and they aren't working and they should be working. These guys should still be making records because they have not lost anything. Also, another musician we worked with in the Bo Keys, who's no longer with us, is Ben Cauley from the Bar Kays, trumpet player. Um, so it was in the early 2000s that uh, the Bo Keys were formed, and in 2004, we went into Willie Mitchell's Royal Studios and we recorded our first album, which was the Royal Sessions. Buckle up, y'all. Let's ride this jump. our first album with Willie Mitchell it was another life-changing moment for me much like working with Roland James Um, Willie Mitchell's definitely a mentor to me and I wouldn't be doing anything that I'm doing today if you know had I not met him and had the opportunity to work with him after the Bo Keys recorded the Royal Sessions not long after that Willie said I'm about to do a new Al Green record, and I would like for you to come in and help us on it. And I was hired as an assistant engineer, and they also uh, hired Skip Pitts to play guitar on it. Um, so we uh, we made two Al Green records with uh, Willie Mitchell for Blue Note, and that was in the mid-2000s. And um, being able to work on those two records with Willie was 
they're just it was like a once in a lifetime learning experience to you know I, re- I remember seeing those songs go from him at his desk with a Casio working out the chord changes all the way to the very end where he's doing like you know string overdubs and the mixing of it and the mastering of it I got to see him do a Al Green record from top to bottom start to finish and it was just it was he was the master you mm-hmm. know there's no one he was just it, it was just uh, just even talking about it now I'm still just you know overwhelmed by that opportunity mm-hmm. and how amazing that was and how much I learned mm-hmm. uh, the arranger on that session was a gentleman named Lester Snell who was also in Isaac Hayes's band in the 70s and Lester is a keyboard player and arranger and when uh, Isaac was doing Shaft and did Tough Guys and Truck Turner and all of his film work in the 70s, Lester was working with him on his arranging. And just having being exposed to you know Lester and how he worked and his arranging and his sounds and working with Willie Hall and Skip Pitts, who had had that experience working on uh, Isaac's films, it, that... You know, we were making records, but also um, they had that experience working on films and film scores, and I feel like they also brought that element of recording into the album work we were doing. And it was shortly after that, around that same time, that um, Craig Brewer had been... I'd met him at a party a few years before that, he had done a film called The Poor and Hungry, and I was telling him how much I liked that film, and he was telling me how much he liked the score that my band Impala had done for that that low-budget B-movie, Teenage Tupelo, that we had done. He's like, I love what Impala did for that. And I said, well, I loved your film, The Poor and Hungry. So we were kind of having a mutual appreciation conversation where we were telling each other how much we liked the other one's work. And he said... Uh, and I've got this script called Hustle and Flow that I've been working on, and it's about this guy. He's, you know, he's a pimp, but he's, you know, really a rapper, and he's trying to get out of the pimping game and get his rap career going. And we start talking about Memphis hip hop and rap, and um, I forgot to mention my first job out of high school was at a record distributor called Selecto Hits in Memphis. Mm-hmm. Selected Hits was started by Sam Phillips' family. Back uh, when Sun Records got started, Sam Phillips' brother started a record distributorship to sell Sun Records, and that has grown into a big record distributor, and they are one of the main distributors of hip-hop and rap and urban music in the world. And I worked there in the in the late '80s and early '90s, and um, so much Southern rap was being distributed through there. And then they had their own imprints, and they were releasing a lot of rap. And so I was familiar with that world from working at Selected Hits, and familiar with the artist. And um, so Craig and I we kept in touch about the script, and he eventually gave me a copy of it and I read it and I thought it was it just blew me away I was like this is an amazing script 
you know, anything you need that I can do for you to help you make this movie, I would love to. I'd love to be involved in any way I can. And uh, he was starting to have meetings in L.A. trying to get funding for the movie. And it took about five years for that to eventually get made. And Craig would uh, initially... I helped him put together like a CD compilation that he would take to meetings and he would put on the CD and give his pitch Mm -hmm, for the mm -hmm. film. So for five years, Craig would say, I think the film's finally going to get greenlit. You know, I've got this meeting with so-and-so in LA next week and just get ready because this thing's going to happen. And he would go to L.A., and then he'd get back, and he'd call me, and he's like, I've got bad news. You know, it didn't work out, but, you know, I'm not giving up. And then that, that happened for five years, but, like, he never gave up on it, and I I'd never gave up on it either. I'm like, man, it's a great script. You know, just keep working at it because eventually, you know, someone's going to go for this, and mm-hmm. if they don't, you know, make it like you did your last film, you know, do – you know, put it on a credit card, you know, that <laughs> yeah, was yeah. what people, filmmakers I knew were doing at the time, you mm-hmm. know, they were funding their projects on credit cards and I'm like, just do it, make it independent if you have to, if no one, you know, you can't get like a large budget. Um, but eventually, um, I remember, um, you know, getting a call from Craig telling me that, uh, John Singleton was interested in, in working with him on it and was going to get on board with him and Stephanie Elaine was one of the producers and Stephanie Stephanie and Craig you know they were working together to get it made and Stephanie got John Singleton on board because they'd worked together on Boys in the Hood so John said well with me on board you know there'll be no problem getting this film greenlit well the same thing happened <laughs> they went to like every studio and everybody like either passed or they wanted to change some element of the mm-hmm. film that creatively Craig and the producers didn't want to compromise on mm-hmm. so eventually uh you know cr- the way Craig tells the story he said that uh John called him one day and said, Craig, you know, I've gone to every studio in town and I cannot get anyone to fund this. And Craig said that he thought the next word out of John's mouth was going to be, you know, I'm giving up. But instead, John Singleton said, I've decided I'm going to green light this myself. Wow. And, uh, you know, the, the make, the making of that film, it was, it was a, it was a magical experience. It was, Working with them on Hustle and Flow was similar to what it was like working on an Al Green record with Willie Mitchell. Mm -hmm. It was like having someone that is completely at the top of their game that really knows what they're doing on a high level, like making something. And to be able to watch that process and see how someone who really knows what they're doing, Mm -hmm. seeing them do that, it's, it's amazing. After Hustle and Flow went on to also do Black Snake Moan with the same crew of folks. And I feel like Craig Brewer and John Singleton and Stephanie Elaine, I feel like they pulled more out of me than anyone ever has Mm -hmm. creatively. You know, they just pushed everything to a higher level and pulled things out of me that I didn't think I was even capable of doing. Mm -hmm. 
So I think that's a real testament to Craig's directing and to their producing. It seems like every year there's one film that just comes out of nowhere and just blows everybody away, you know, across all audiences. Uh, that year it was Hustle and Flow, no doubt. And um, besides being a great movie with great performances, um, having been in Memphis a lot myself, that film just pulsates with the vibe of Memphis. I mean, you just feel it and you feel like that, um, you feel that kind of spirit of all these people coming together to make that movie. You can just feel it in the movie. Um, I think it's really powerful. And musically, it's, you know, it's a massive, it was a massive undertaking. The, the song, uh, It's Hard Out Here for a Pimp, won the Oscar that year for best song. Maybe surprising people, but everyone was thrilled when it happened. Amazing. Just the whole film is full of great tracks. And, and then your score is like holding this all together and you're taking sonic elements. Can you talk a little bit about how you, it's almost like your score has, gives it a certain coherence and also an emotional underpinning that there are scenes where you need score. And can you just talk about like what the conversations were with you and Craig and, and like what your approach was in terms of that? Well, I've, I mentioned, you know, Skip Pitts and Willie Hall who played in the Bo Keys um, when we first started. And, you know, those guys, as I mentioned, were on all of Isaac Hayes's scores. And they're also Isaac's scores, in addition to a lot of his music, is like very, very heavily sampled. So my approach to the hustle and flow score was to it was for the score to sound like music that rap producers would sample you know like Willie Hutch Isaac Hayes um, Marvin Gaye um, there's a Marvin Gaye album called Hear My Dear mm -hmm. which is you know I think it's a masterpiece that was that album was a big influence um you know, just all the 70s soul records that are heavily sampled. That I was like, you know, I've got this band that's like these musicians who played on all these legendary albums that have been sampled. So, you know, I'm going to make a score that I want people to sample.
so the sound of it that was um that was you know kind of the what i was thinking about the sound and you know craig really you know knew how to push me and push the musicians to get the most emotional impact out of the music because we would have something that would be in the intensity would be to a certain level and then he would push us he was always pushing for more and i think he just got more out of you know my writing and he got more out of the performance of the musicians in the studio his energy you know his excitement you know there's nothing i don't know you you're you're familiar with this there's nothing i don't believe in the world more exciting than when you are in a scoring session and you have the picture up and you are hearing that music to picture for the first time that first playback is just magic Mm -hmm. when you're hearing and seeing the marriage of the two at the same time it just takes it it, it's it makes it three-dimensional at that point Mm -hmm. um so the energy you know in the room of creating that music is very special and what is your process um broadly in terms of how you first start writing do you you've got your own studio did you have your own studio at that time i did Mm -hmm. and that's actually that how i came to have my own studio Uh, i worked at you know many different studios in memphis but the day i signed my contract for hustle and flow i bought recording equipment that was (laughs) what i spent my money on and it was it was a good decision so i had i set up a home studio at that point Mm -hmm. Um, at the time I was single and I had a, you know, a two bedroom house and one bedroom became a studio. And that's where I recorded a lot of the score for both hustle and flow and black snake mm-hmm. moan was in my home studio. And I then, you know, would take those tracks to ardent studios in Memphis and, you know, overdub on top and then, you know, re-record some of the music, but, you know, a little, a lot a good part of both of those scores actually recorded in my home studio and did you um were you writing on a keyboard into software were you or were you playing a lot laying down tracks to pictures sort of as you watched the picture what was what was your approach as far as that goes and and also at what point did you bring in the other musicians and what do you like to compose on what do you use a, a keyboard or guitar? I use, I really use everything, primarily yeah. guitar and keyboards, but you just never know depending on what the score is and mm-hmm. what the instrumentation is, what I'll use to write on. Um, Hustle and Flow, the process was very unique for that mm-hmm. because I was involved in it before it was even made. So I was literally writing to the script. But Mm. then I would get dailies and I would compose to the dailies. I was so familiar with the script and I was, you know, Craig had a very, you know, before he shot one frame of Hustle and Flow, he already knew how he was going to cut it. He knew every scene. He knew how it was going to look. He knew how it was going to sound. And he'd already told me for this scene, I want this sound and I want, you know, you know, he, he had songs in his head and he would play me examples of what he wanted. 
So I had a real strong idea of what he was hearing already Mm -hmm. before it was ever even cut. Mm -hmm. So I literally was getting dailies and composing to dailies. And when he and the editor, Billy Fox, got into editing, they actually did some editing to my sort of temp. Oh, interesting. Like cues that Mm -hmm. I'd done to the dailies, uh, which is very unusual Mm -hmm. uh, for that um, process to happen that way. Um, I'm inspired a lot by acting. I, in particular, Hustle and Flow, Taraji Henson's performance, her emotion and her performance was emotionally what I fed off the most in the music for that film. Mm-hmm. That her, what she did was just the biggest inspiration to me in that. And uh, so emotionally, I really feed off the acting the most. Um, and also, the you know, just the way things look. You know, Amy Vincent was the DP on both of Craig's films that I worked on. And her, you know, visually, uh, just the lighting and how things are framed um, would inspire me a lot. You know, the use of space in the, in a frame and how, you know, in both of those films, there's like a lot of really beautiful wide shots used in some montages and those like really beautiful wide shots of like Memphis in the South were very inspiring to compose to. Also for me, you know, instrumentation is very important to score. Uh, when I approach something, I start associating different characters with instruments. That's another, that's how I hear things and I see things. Even when I read a script, I start thinking like, what instrument is this character? What instrument is that character? And then sometimes even there are characters in films that aren't necessarily people. Mm-hmm. What instrument is that car mm-hmm. or what instrument or instruments are this location? So then you did Black Snake Moan after that. And well, I'll say um, you're a very humble and soft-spoken person. But the fact is that you're one of the most sought-after producers at this point in Memphis. And you have an incredible uh, circle of really some of the finest musicians anywhere on the planet that you work with. They're all based around there. And I'm just always impressed with the the caliber of musician that you work with um you've introduced me to many of them through our projects that we've done together so talk about moving into that project and you brought in it was a different palette and what was that like well so for what hustle and flow was to the memphis rap and 
70 stack session player group of musicians. Black Snake Moan was to the North Mississippi hill country genre of musicians. And um, some of life-changing music I experienced when I was younger were going to blues festivals in Mississippi and also going to Junior Kimbrough's Juke Joint in Holly Springs, Mississippi, and the music that Fat Possum Records was releasing. Um, you know, R.L. Burnside, Junior Kimbrough, Oether Turner, Frank Frost and the Jelly Roll Kings, T-Model Ford. There's, there was just this amazing music that was coming out of Mississippi at that time. And it wasn't a slick sound. It wasn't like a slick, you know, Chicago blues sound. It wasn't, you know, this studio sound with horns of like Albert King or B.B. King or Johnny Taylor. This was like music that you could draw a very strong comparison to you know african music mm -hmm. between that and the music being made in north mississippi it was very raw you know Oether turner was using like it was like fife and drum music and it had a sound and a feel unlike anything else it just it was it's ethereal it's um it's a, just a it doesn't sound like music even it sounds like music from another planet or another era it's just a really special music so that was that world of music is you know black snake moan and we did a massive amount of research for that film um samuel samuel l jackson that film performs music and he did a great great job he really you know, his work ethic was unbelievable and how hard he worked at getting the guitar parts right and how hard he worked at getting the vocal phrasing right. He put in an, an crazy amount of effort to become that character and to be able to perform that music. And so we put him with a few different guitar players, um, Luther Dickinson from the North Mississippi All-Stars, Kenny Brown, who played with R.L. Burnside, and also Alvin Young Bloodheart and Jason Freeman. And it was, uh, all the songs had a little bit of a different sound, but in the end, you know, we kind of brought them together to have a cohesive, they're cohesive as a whole, but they're all different guitar players. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the music that we licensed, uh, and my score, you know, all incorporated elements of the North Mississippi hill country sound.
it's a beautiful score, beautiful sound, the whole film, the, like the musical palette, it's amazing. And those are all extraordinary musicians too. That, I mean, talk about that a little bit because, you know, one of the things that you do a lot of in Memphis, you're high, like, as I mentioned, you're a highly sought after producer. Um, and um, you've got the studio going. I know you do a lot of work with a lot of people, some of my favorite people that you've introduced me to, you know, John Paul Keith and Amy LeVere. And I know you just did a record with those guys, the Motel Mirrors yeah. record. Um, talk about that. Talk about you here you are in Memphis. You're balancing all these different, you wear a lot of hats. You were, you were the president of the Memphis chapter of the Recording, recording Academy. I mean, it's just like, you run your own studio. It, it, to me, that's it's a part of who you are. You, 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 you. I know you think in all these different ways, and and part of it is, I guess, that's what you do when you're, you know, in Memphis, it's firmly embedded into the music scene. Um, just talk about that a little bit, if you don't mind. I'd always dreamed of being a composer. I'd always dreamed of doing music for film, but. I just never knew how realistic it would be to actually uh, be able to have those opportunities to do that. So before that world, you know, that was something that I was able to be involved in. I had gotten really heavily involved in working in studios and engineering and producing albums. And... Uh, in the mid 2000s when i was you know working on craig brewer's films i was you know doing other composing projects as well I was doing some tv work um some commercial work and i was in uh i was in los angeles a lot there were you know in the mid 2000s i was splitting up my time between la and memphis and uh at one point I had to make the decision, do I move to L.A. and pursue composing full-time, or do I stay in Memphis and concentrate more on producing records and engineering and playing bass in the Bow Keys? And, uh, you know, I kind of weighed it, and I just, you know, came to the realization that more than anything, I love Memphis music. I love Memphis musicians. And nothing really made me happier than making records in Memphis. And I really just I made the decision just to go full full time into uh, having a studio in Memphis and making records. And uh, I just, when I'm happiest is when I'm in the studio in Memphis making records. So... Uh, that's it you know i still continue to do film work i'll still do you know the occasional commercials too well i find it all really inspiring i have to say you know the film that i directed in memphis uh feature that you wrote the score and produced the music for losers take all and where i got to meet all these amazing people steve salvage too and paul bucagnani just phenomenal jack oblivion i mean he, amazing musicians you know and there's a tremendous sense of community but you mentioned mike mccarthy before craig they st still in memphis and what it speaks to to me and it's really inspiring because i have this conversation a lot with people who 
filmmakers who live in some other town that's not, you know, one of the major, considered the major film towns or composers. And, you know, they, there's this, they, they're torn. They have, they're making the same decision. They're making these beautiful films in the community that supports them where they grew up. And, you know, they start asking, sometimes the filmmaker that I, will reach out to me and say, how would, you know, where can I find a composer? And I say, there's gotta be a composer in your town. There's gotta be a, a band that you love that you probably grew up with, you know? And I just think that the, the world that you are a part of in Memphis is just such a, to me, an inspiration uh, because you sup all support each other's work. And I think, you know, especially now where everyone can have access to the same filmmaking tools, you know, shooting on a DSLR or even on your iPhone and people can have a great little studio in their homes. Uh, and, you know, the economic pressures that go with living in New York or L.A. and just who needs that, you know. <laughs> uh, I think it's, I just think it's an amazing thing. I was so inspired by it when we filmed there. And every time I go, I'm just blown away. That's, you know, that's why I stayed. It's just such a, it's a great musical community. There's a great independent film community there. It's a very... It's a place where you can live and you can make your art and be comfortable. And you don't have as much financial pressure. And it allows you to, uh, it allows you to be creative, I think, and be able to concentrate more on making your film, making your music. There's also a sensibility which... The, the level of knowledge about music in Memphis is just so extraordinary. I just on, you know, in everyday conversation, you know, you've got Sun Studios, you've got Graceland, you've got all of that, you've got Stacks, but it's also just, it just permeates, you know, it's just in the air, which I love. I think it's amazing. And the other thing is there's a, there's a real like sensitive bullshit meter in Memphis. And so, I get that from everybody. There's just like this integrity and honesty. I hear it in your music. I see it in the films that get made. Um, am I wrong? I mean, I just feel like there's there's like truthfulness. People call you out if it's not if it's not real. I I would agree with that. I think that uh, I think Memphians have a high bar for for music. And if you can do something there that goes over and that people accept, I think, I think you're going to do well globally or, you know, in other places. Um, so at the same time with Memphis, I've noticed that sometimes Memphis doesn't appreciate what it does have. And sometimes it takes having success outside of Memphis to be appreciated in Memphis. That's another Thing that I hear, you know, hear people say about it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe every place is like that. I'm not sure. Yeah. Let's talk just for a brief second about your approach to producing. Now, I got to see it on Losers Take All, which, uh, you know, is a it's a rock and roll stoner love letter to '80s indie rock, um, written by Wynne Coslick and Andrew Pope. Great performances. The music is amazing. You you put together amazing group of musicians there's songs in the movie uh, from memphis 
songwriters, Jack Oblivion, you've got John Paul Keith who wrote uh, Anyone Can Do It, which becomes the essentially the theme song for the movie, which Kyle Gowner is singing live vocals in the movie. Uh, you were working on the music even before I got hired to direct the movie. In fact, it was your demos that made me want to, wow. one, of the, one of the things that made me want to do the movie That's because great. I was just like, oh, the music is going to be amazing and the script is great. Okay, so you have it's interesting too because that's sort of like a indie punk sort of 80s vibe and you nail that i mean it's just the sound is so natural and raw and just like just the energy is great uh needless to say memphis has its own association with the history of that music too in fact in the film you've, we've got alex chilton track and you know, the replacements were famously worked at Arden. So I'd just talk about that. The music that was really happening in Memphis when I first started going out, when I was younger to hear live music, it was always at this venue called the Antenna Club, which was like our punk rock club. And it was unbelievable. Like the artists who played there, the bands that came through, if you looked at the it just you wouldn't believe the people that played at this place and it was you know it was like where my first shows I ever played were at the antenna and uh I know that you know Steve Selvage he and I are the same age and all the the musicians who played on the music from Losers Take All that you know we brought in to play on those tracks 
are all of the era of guys who grew up going to the antenna club. And I feel like we kind of drew off that experience to make the music for that. And, and there's a, you talked about bringing the best out of people. I saw it with the way you work with musicians and just kind of, you have this really gentle way of just kind of leading, sort of gently coaxing people in the right direction. You get these amazing performances. How do you, be, and, and, and partly because the performances are such a big part of what gives your scores so much um, of their emotional resonance. Talk about how you like to work with musicians and how you communicate with them when you're in the studio. I think one of the biggest, I'm not going to say, I guess you could say secrets or one of, I, I think one of the biggest things about producing, whether it's records, films, whatever it is, I think hiring the right people is the most important thing. So when I'm, a, a lot of times, you know, with a score, like I'll write something with a specific musician or musicians in mind. Like I'm thinking about them and the way they play when I come up with something. So that's really a big part of it is just hiring someone who's, you know, has the right vocabulary for what you're wanting to do. Um, and then as far as uh, working with folks, you know, I like, I like for people to have a good time. I like for it to be comfortable. Um, I like for it to be a positive experience for everybody. So I'm, um, and I also like to be real clear beforehand about expectations. And I like to explain exactly what things are supposed to sound like or supposed to be like and give people a real clear picture of what, I'm looking for and what the filmmakers are looking for mm -hmm. and just explaining things clearly and giving references is always helpful too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when, you know, you're hiring musicians, you're hiring them for a reason for what they do and they can bring in. And I'm also open to what their ideas are about things because they may hear something completely different. So I like to be, open to others interpretations because sometimes you know you'll have something in mind and someone could end up suggesting something that's better than what you were hearing you know they can take your idea and your music and make it better you know having had a chance to work in your studio i i know that you really into certain types of gear like some vin vintage sounds you've got a got a Hammond in there right Hammond organ and uh can you talk a little bit about like your approach to sound and how you like to work with that well I um I, I get real obsessed with you know certain songs certain records certain studios certain engineers and uh you know i'll hear something and just get completely obsessed with how it was made and you know what mics were used you know what kind of console do they have what you know what was the room like and uh i'm always re researching instruments always researching musicians you know of all genres of music and uh, that obsession i think is how I've been able to have a career doing music is just always passionately 
searching for knowledge and different sounds. So, um, you know, over the years, you know, having a studio and working in music, people will call me and say, man, I've got such and such instrument and I'm not using it anymore where it's broken. And I thought maybe, you know, you could use it at your place. So, um, you know, my studio has been a kind of an orphanage for, uh, for musical equipment. (laughs) Um, I, you know, some studios you go to, they don't really have, it's a great studio, but they don't have a lot of instruments there. It's kind of a blank canvas, which is cool, but my place is more kind of plug in and play. You know, I have a lot of instruments there and a lot of vintage instruments and, um, yeah, it's kind of, you know, show up and turn it on and plug in and go. (laughs) And, uh, I like being able to get, um, you know, sounds of different eras and different types of music. I like being able to have kind of a versatile studio where, you know, depending on the music, I have different guitar amps that'll get kind of different sounds. Same with drums and bass amps and keyboards. You know, there's so many amazing players that I get to work with. It's it's nice to have these instruments to be able to have you know people who are really accomplished come play them oh, yeah. and to be able to work with them and record them. You've also uh, you talked about working with Al Green early on, and you've worked with some amazing vocalists over the last several years. We did that project uh, with you with Percy Wiggins, and tonight you're playing with Don Bryant. And talk about working with these amazing singers because there there there's something to be said for. Uh, knowing how to support them musically. Talk about that a little. Well, it's uh, to be able to accompany a vocalist, it is in a lot of ways similar to film because in film, you are frequently working around dialogue. You know, you don't want to step on the dialogue. You want to support it, but you don't want to play over it. Uh, It's similar backing a vocalist. You want to accompany a vocalist and make them sound the best that they can sound and be appropriate for what the type music they're doing and appropriate for the dynamics of the song and the way and the lyrics of the song. Um, Howard Grimes, the great drummer from the high rhythm section who also plays in the bow keys. That was what he, he, that's one of the things he always says that Willie Mitchell taught him as a drummer and as a musician is to always listen to the vocals always listen to the vocalist and always listen to the lyrics Hmm. and if you do that you're you know you're in good shape Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah you know where to where to sit yeah yeah awesome well scott i know you got to go do a sound check it's always great to see you i'm glad we can meet up here i'm gonna come see your show tonight um glad you were in new york and uh i'm looking forward to seeing you in memphis the next time it's always great seeing you alex and thank you for inviting me to be part of this i appreciate it it's an honor